What's going on, world? It's Wednesday, April 29th. This is Derek Dunn with Reviews and Dunn. On the line, I have Mr. John Powell, singer of R&B group, UNV. You might remember UNV with their signature 93 hit, Something's Going On, which is still a classic song, 27 years later. How are you doing today, sir? I can't complain. They tell me it wouldn't do me anything anyway. <laughs> sure. Well, like I said, every day is a blessing. You wake up every day, you don't get the virus, it's a blessing. So, you know, you really can't, um, can't complain. And as they say, there's always going to be a greener pasture out there. So let's go Absolutely. ahead and get this thing started. So how did you get your start in music? Well, um, it's Jay Powell, and I have been singing since uh, I was uh, young, and they say. Uh, my brother, Sean, who was also in the group, um, blood brother, we grew up in a very singing family, uh, who was actually signed to Delphonic Records back in the day, and they were called the Coopers. Uh, Seven-man group, all family, brothers and five brothers and two sisters. And uh, so we grew up every holiday. It was like a concert at my grandparents' house. So we grew up watching and listening and, you know, honing our skills as well as, you know, just picking up how to develop harmonies and everything else. So it's kind of all in the family. People say, oh, I heard you guys just started in church. You know, I'd love to be able to say that, but <laughs> that's not necessarily the case, even though uh, a big part of our sound uh, I kind of developed around commission and the wine-ins because I'm a huge fan of both those groups. So that's kind of how we got started. Who were some of your early influences? You know, at an early age, I was always, um, because my parents were heavy into Motown and, you know, us coming into that new millennium of R&B, I was always a LeVert fan. Joe um, LeVert is like one of my, was one of my mentors. Um, I had actually had the opportunity to uh, meet him before he passed away on our second album. He wrote, produced a song for me. Um, Teddy Pendergrass had the opportunity to meet him as well. Um, Fred Hammond, uh, Marvin Watkins. Those were a lot of the, the signature sound folks that I heard and actually almost tried to tear my voice behind. For those who may not know, I'm the, the big singer, uh, the big vocals on most of every UNV song. Um, so when you hear the ending of that, something's going on, that's me at the end doing all the big voice stuff. So kind of pattern myself a lot of behind Fred Hammond, LeVert, Gerald, and Teddy Pendergraft type of sound, for sure. Yeah, in the um, video, you, you're the guy that was doing the, um, I'm so confused with the, Rocky in your voice, right? You had your, you had your, you had your um, arms like in a fist, bringing it up. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a young buck, but I'm also an old soul. So I remember the video. Had to watch it before I did the interview just to get real familiar with your um, music once again. So Absolutely. before the group signed, before the group signed with Maverick Entertainment, you all released your first album independently. How hard was it to record an album without major label support back in the early '90s? Well, the good thing about um, doing what we did, we actually did release an album. We released a single first. Uh, the single, of course, was Something's Going On. And I wrote the song, 
Um, so it was one of those things where I was primarily the primary writer, and JC in the group, uh, the guy with the really high voice, he could play piano extremely well. So he was the he played the piano. So when we first collabed on the song, um, I had the melody and the lyrics on point, and he had the you know the the vibe on the keyboard. So we all got together and. After they heard what I did, and they, everybody added a little in here, a little there, next thing you know, uh, you know, we came up with a song. We released it independently in Detroit first. Uh, we were signed to a uh, an independent production house uh, at the time. Um, I won't give them any credit because it wasn't a, the, the most business. Uh, wasn't the best business deal at that time. But anyway, we were signed to a independent production company who helped actually um, produce the single. Not really produce it, but they actually gave us the, the opportunity and the resources to be able to record it at their studio. So we did that. We released the record. Uh, the production company released the record. And within a couple of months' time, we sold um, probably fifteen to 17,000 units. But at the time, we were young, you know, early 20s, not knowing a whole lot about the business. While we were selling all those units, that production company was just pocketing all that money. So, but before long, you know, Major started wondering, what is this number one most requested song in Detroit called Something's Going On? And so we started getting inquiries and inquiries. Next thing you know, Madonna's manager is on our porch um, in the hood of Detroit knocking at the door. Well, it wasn't him. It was a security guard, two huge security guards. We came to the door, and they were like, does you and me live here? We were like, yes, yes, that, that would be us. You know, who are you? And they, he was like, hold on, I'm going to get Freddie DeMann. He went and got Madonna's manager, who was Freddie DeMann, and the president of Maverick Records at the time. And he came in the house, came on up in, and we were looking at this guy who looked like the godfather, quite honestly, white hair, <laughs> big, big mustache. Um, I mean, straight look mafia like a mother. Uh, and he said, so I hear you guys, you know, got the number one requested record in the city and getting a lot of offers. Well, I came in person to see if all the hype is real. Let me hear you sing something. So we used to do this acapella number. Um, we used to do the New Jack City version of For the Love of Money. And so we used to do yeah. that version a lot of time in concerts. And, you know, that would be our little acapella piece that we would get started on. So we broke into that. Broke it down. He was like, um, okay, I'm convinced. Pack your bags. I'll send a car to get you tomorrow. You're coming to L.A. And just said that and walked out. We was like, what? You know, like, what? Are you serious? Walked out. Um, next thing you know, we get a call from our manager um, at the time, who was John Mason was a huge radio. Mason is a, a huge radio icon uh, out here in the Midwest. Uh, he started out at WJLB and was there for almost 25 years or something, but he's now the voice of the Pistons. When you hear Detroit, whenever they play, he's the guy who goes, Detroit basketball. He's the, one of the commentators. But anyway, long story short, he calls us. He said, man, Freddie man just called me. He said he wants to sign you guys going to L.A. tomorrow. Get your bags ready. I'll be there to pick you all up. Um, in a metro car, limousine, to pick y'all up in the morning. And the rest is what you can say, your sisters. 
Can you tell us the backstory behind your first hit, Something's Going On? The way you all sang that song, even when I was age 12, I could tell that there was something very personal behind those um, behind those lyrics. So was that a personal story that you experienced in your younger single days, or was it just um, a spur-of-the-moment song? No, it was definitely uh, an experience, but an experience that I watched through my mother's eyes. So it was one of those things that, um, you know, as a young guy growing up, you know, you know, like I know when you have, if you're, you know, you see your parents grow up and you know when your mother is either hurt or hurt for a reason or whatever, I had a stepdad, uh, and I just saw those circumstances kind of unfold before my eyes. So I just kind of, you know, I like to write. Uh, I've been told that I write like a person having a conversation. So I write what I feel in conversation-type text. So if you, if you know that song and you listen to it, it's almost like, a man or a woman talking to their spouse saying, you know, look, lately I've been thinking that you don't feel the same. You know, I don't know what it is. All I know is that you change. I mean, you know, exactly. You know, so it's, it's word for word. It's like a conversation. But so that's how I kind of built the story. And it just <clears throat> really came to life. Uh, and the words just saying, I never knew it would have the kind of effect that it had worldwide or international, so to speak. Um, the effect that it would have. It was, it's amazing to think, you know, the kind of plateau it took us to and the ability to see the world twice in three different countries, um, you know, in that kind of scenario. So it was, it was amazing. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a big song. I mean, I'm, a, um, I'm an Air Force vet, and my mom is an um, Army veteran. So a lot of my music, you know, my younger days came from, Dubbing, dubbing her CDs, and she would always tell me when I was younger that overseas, especially in Korea, they love R&B music, like they love it. And something's going on, you know, it was one of those big songs. And for me, when I joined, I was a DJ in the UK. And I, you know, I tell the story to all my interviewers, just like, you know, how much they love R&B music in the UK as well as Korea. So I could be in the club one night and I always would close my set out with the with the slow cut and you know, I could play one of your songs, something's going on and it would be somebody that was British or somebody that was like, you know, in their forties and still in the military or get ready to get ready to retire or approach and they would say, Young Buck, what you know about that? I'm like Yeah, I'm, I'm an old soul. That's a classic song. So yeah, you guys definitely had a worldwide hit. So June 29, 1993, you all released your debut record on Mavic Records, Madonna's label. What do you remember about the first album and the marketing campaign they did for you all? Well, I mean, the first album was so very organic that the marketing just had to just fall in line with what the record was already doing. The label just basically gave us a platform to get it to the world. The, the, the record was already a hit. They just had to get it to the masses to make it a bigger hit. So the first album was extremely organic. Um, you know, when that album went gold, we were, you know, extremely um, elated at the time. But the transition, I think, in the marketing shifted hugely on the second album. Um, one of the things you have to understand and you have to realize 
in every group, there's an ensemble of some type, and you always see the regular theme that goes with ensemble when you watch groups from the 90s, whether it be Intro, Jodeci, Silk, Shy, whomever. It was always one person who probably did the majority of the writing and made most of the money. And when you see those unsung shows, you see nine times out of ten, doing a little bit here and over there, or whatever the case may be, but you don't really hear from the others. And that was basically a, a lot of the scenario. So from the first album, of course, you know, I wrote pretty much 90% of the record. So, you know, when your publishing is one way and everybody else is another, um, that can sometimes, you know, make people, make things, people change when money comes into the picture, so to speak. You know, when, you, when you're struggling and you, you don't have nothing, this is the best brotherhood in the world. And, you know, and don't get me wrong, it's still a brotherhood, but when, the, when money comes into play, it always makes people, um, you know, change a little bit. And people get different acting. So by the time the second album came around, <clears throat> the label was like, okay, we're going to give you guys the opportunity to get with some bigger name producers and, and do some other things and maybe try to get some writing in, but you're gonna, we want to put you with some bigger producers who can maybe take you to another level. Well, I was always against that in the beginning simply because I always felt like the organic feel of what we did is what got us the success to take us and change that up and try and make us something different than we're not, you know, I felt like was a mistake. And no matter how I um, um, played it, however what happened, um, um, it just made a situation like, um, you know, it was complicated. You know, I would say, listen, guys, I'm going to go. Um, there's a guy that's three sessions going on that we can get into and do some writing. But this is, you got to think, this is at the peak of our career. So while everybody wanted to be the star and be stars, nobody was taking that kind of stuff seriously but me, really. So I would go to the sessions, whether it had been with Brian McKnight or whether it had been with, um, you know, whomever we were working with at that time, David Foster or whomever, um, and I would go and nobody else would show up at the sessions but me. So I would do the majority of the writing or whatever the case may be and, and write. So when it was time to turn in the album, you know, or we had to turn in music to play for the album, I had about 15 songs, and between the group, they had about three. The rest were songs from other people. So, you know, we obviously started to say, okay, pick, and we had to pick. And so we had people like, eh, you know a song is good. And they're like, oh, it's all right. What else you got? What? And then you don't, they don't have anything, and then it's like, okay, why am, I, why am I getting all this pushback? Next thing you know, um, we've picked a whole, well, collectively an album is picked where I only end up with three songs on the record, and the rest are songs that are from other people that we never should have recorded. Never should have recorded. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, on that second album, there were some classic songs. Very classic. Yeah, we're getting into all that. We're getting into all that. You know, as I played it, you know, I got questions from uh, about all that too. But uh, all this stuff is um, gold. You know, um, hearing um, one of my biggest things since I've started doing my website and I'm um, doing interviews is just hearing artists 
speak freely because to me this stuff is um interesting to hear to hear an artist like yourself speak or any other or any any other artist that I've heard speak for me personally is the equivalent of sports fanatics hearing Jordan speak with his um current documentary that's on ESPN. So mm-hmm. thank you thank you for being so open and just giving all this like knowledge. I, mean, I, I could sit here for I could sit here for hours and just listen to, sit here for hours and listen to an artist just talk about the process of making music and writing songs and who was in the studio, who who didn't show up and you know, my inspiration behind this song. I mean, all this stuff to me is um, musical gold, as I, as I call it. Um, nothing but knowledge. So, yeah, I want to get more on the second album a little bit later in the interview, but um, around that time, around 93, there was so much competition out there. I mean, you had you guys, you had Intro, you had Portrait, Shy, Voice Men was still making noise. Who was the first prominent artist that the group toured with back in those days? Um, you got to think that that's back in the day they used to have, well, they still have them, Summerfest, and they would have concerts and promoters would put groups together. So, I mean, everybody you just named <laughs> is who we toured with. I mean, whether it was on, whether it was us, Boys to Men, um, you know, Joe Z, Shy, all on one ticket. We toured with everybody. Everybody you just mentioned, we toured at some point or another with. Um, that was our stable. Now, we spent a lot of the majority of that time with probably Silk and Shy um, and Intro um, and to the extreme. So we spent a lot of time with that little nucleus for a while. And then it just started to kind of expand out where you, you know, because Boyce and Men would do certain things and they would, you know, have certain artists that they would want. And you got to think when you're, when you were you considered at the time the power the the biggest power group, you don't want that group with four other individual great singers on your same ticket. You see what I'm saying? Now a lot of the '90s groups, you might have had one, two singers that could sing and hold it down, but Boyz II Men had three singers that could really, really sing. The bass guy really could sing, but we had four individual lead singers that could step out at any time and do what they do. And we were also one of the first groups to come out dressed nice. You know, when we first came out in the 90s groups, they were all dressing, you know, boots, jeans, sack, you know, they were all trying to go behind that thing. We were like one of the first groups in the 90s to dress really nice. If you saw the video, we were, we were dressed nice. Every video we've ever, you and me ever did, we were always, you know, nicely dressed. We wanted to give that aura of classiness and not, and it was, Never anything crazy. We just we tried to keep it classic. So we toured all those groups to answer your question. So speaking on that, was there ever um any competition, or was it just like you know it was a friendly um friendly rivalry? Because I've seen interviews and talking to the artists where they would say that you know it wasn't that you had beef with somebody when you had to perform, but if anything, it would inspire you to make your stage show that much better because you saw what so-and-so was doing before you, so you had to come out there and totally um, oh, yeah. change it. I mean, I saw, to... I saw an interview that um, it was after 7 and Tony, Tony, Tony were speaking, and they basically said, like, Tony, Tony, Tony was after doing backflips and drumming and breakdancing on stage, so 
they had to go back and write down something else to do so they could come out and totally, you know, bring their A game because it seemed like you, know, you had to have your A game at all times because you never knew where you would be at in the show. And just in case somebody didn't show up, you know, that gave you a chance to make your stage show that much better. It was always competition. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was it was night after night. It was competition. I mean, I can remember when we before when we first met Silk, um, we were in I think Texas, and we were they were mad because we were headlining. At the time, we had, our record was number one. Um, it was number one in the country, and we were headlining this particular show. <clears throat> and they they messed up our mics. Their road manager like literally messed up our mic hookup in the back before we went on. So we went on, there was a lot of feedback, and it was crazy. Um, but we turned it around almost like a five-heartbeat kind of a scenario and did that acapella for the love of money until they got our sound right and killed the fans with doing that. But it was always competition. I mean, we later um, laughed about it and, and, and you know, kicked it and, and, got, and became really cool. And before you knew it, it was kind of like a, um, an R&D 90s urban group fraternity, you know, so every time we get off the road and get into a hotel, we run into intro. We were real cool with intro. We run into H-Town. We run into Silk or Shy. And, you know, what's up, fellas? Uh, you know, it was all up at that point. I mean, you know, at that time, you know, we were, it was always friendly competition to go out and out, try to outdo the next act. But at the end of the day, we were all trying to make a living. We were young men um, who were, a lot of them were really naive about the business and so we were just all trying to have a great time, man, to be 100% honest. But it was great to, um, you know, get past that little – because we only got in a fight with Jodeci in New York. Um, I, can remember, I can remember an interview that Jodeci was doing, you know, back in the days to have, like, Fresh Magazine and um, all those different other – Two Hype Magazine. And, and I can remember an article. Yeah, I can, right on, exactly. I can remember an article that – um, too hype did, and they were doing an interview with Jodeci, and and they were asking Jodeci what do they think about other groups out there. One in particular, I see you guys, you guys got the single lately, and you're number three, and U and V with something's going on is number one. What do you think about these other groups? And Dalvin uh, was like, you know, are they just some copycats? They just want to be us, blah blah blah, some stuff like that, and so. You know, back then, I'm a young guy, I'm a little hothead, you know, whatever, whatever. So I see we, we're in New York at a Quincy Jones party um, where Biggie is performing for the first time. And, you know, it's in New York. Everybody's there. It's crazy. In this particular club, there's an upstairs. They're coming downstairs. We're coming upstairs. So <clears throat> I, we meet in the middle, like, and I'm like, Dalvin, what's, what's that craziness she was talking in the magazine? You know, I, I mean, back then, you know, I'm 21. I'm like, you know, what's that craziness you're talking about in the magazine? You know, and they're some little cats. They're not real, real big guys. You know, I'm 6'1", you know, 200 pounds. So I'm, I walk up on them. I'm kind of like even coming up, I'm still towering over them a little bit. You're like, oh, man, it's all above. You know how magazines be doing. They just be um, you know, say certain things, but it's not really like that. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, okay. All right, bro. And then, you know, once we had that little talk, and I saw him later at the club, we kicked it, and then we started doing shows again together. And then before you know it, just like the thing with Silk, 
be all cool again. And then you realize, man, it's, it's all love. You know, it ain't really nothing, nothing crazy. And you get to see how people's deals are structured and see how, you know, they get out on the road. They ain't even getting no per diem or nothing where Maverick, the one good thing about Maverick, they took care of us. You know, um, they, they took great care of us. I mean, they just didn't give us the autonomy to do what we should have been able to do on the second album that we did with the first. That's yeah, it's, yeah. I guess we're going to get into all that down the um, <clears throat> down the road. I mean, a little, little bit for the interview because I can tell you how the way that I saw it as a um, as a fan, as you know, someone who can't sing a note, but how how I saw it as a fan compared to the second album. Well, you know, hopefully you kind of share the same viewpoint that I have. So let's go ahead and get to the second album. So 1995, the second album comes out. Now, the second album does have the wedding classic, So In Love With You, written by legendary songwriter David Foster. So, I mean, how was it working with David? How, how was it working with David Foster? You know, I tell people all the time, um, musicians are just people just like everybody else. They just have a talent. You, as a writer, have a talent. You're good at what you do. And it is just kind of what it is. As a singer, you're the same way. And, you know, I was never the type to ever be starstruck. I was only starstruck when I met Michael Jackson at the backstage of Madonna's concert. But other than that, I've never been a real starstruck person. And before, I didn't really even know who David Foster was at the time. I was just like, he wants to go work with this guy who produced all for one? This white guy? <laughs> he don't know nothing about no urban music, man. What the? I was totally against that, you know. I was totally against it. I was totally against it taking us to do it. I was totally against them making that the first single. I was totally against it. Now, it was an honor, don't get me wrong, an honor to work with them once I kind of realized and got past the craziness. Um, but we spent a hundred grand on that song. Come on, man. I could do a song for $1,000, and it would sound like, you know, Anybody did it, but uh, we spent $100,000, raw, real strings. I mean, we recorded it at Larrabee in L.A. It was, you know, they spent, they spared no expense, well, at our expense. <laughs> but then at that point, you don't really know that kind of stuff. You just know we're going to work with David Foster. We went to his house up in Malibu, and his wife actually wrote the song, you know, um, and so I was like, well, okay, um, let's let's try and figure this out. But it ended up coming out as a beautiful song. Don't get me wrong, I don't regret recording it. It was a beautiful song, and quite honestly, that song has, is an international was an international smash as well. Even though it didn't really, it only peaked at like thirty something on the charts. Um, but it was internationally, it was a huge record. I mean, I can go on YouTube now and you can find. Chinese people singing at the wedding kind of thing, you know, and I think yeah, back definitely a wedding kind song. Of stuff too. But there was a lot of good records on the second album. You know, any of the Brian McKnight singles could have been the number, could have been the first single, should have been the first single. Um, you know, we had a song called What's It Like to Kiss that Brian McKnight produced. Amazing record. First time that Brian did it. Amazing record. But they chose to try and take us pop you know, because they wanted that all-for-one money, them all-for-one numbers. And so that was that was the start, really, of, of the downfall of us with Maverick because we fought for a long time to not have that be our first single. 
But they said, no, Freddie DeMann was like, no, it's going to be the biggest record of your career. Trust us, blah, blah, blah. And the minute that boy didn't do well, what they do? Just abandoned. You know, they didn't want to go full-fledged on the second single, which was the Brian McKnight single. We had a remix, a remix from Soul Shock and Carlin, who at the time were the two biggest white boy Denmark producers in the game who had just finished Brandy's I Want to Be Down, Monica's Before You Walk Out of My Life. The list goes on. Whitney Houston, they had did every, they were doing everybody at that time. And so <clears throat> we were like, man, but they didn't push it. They didn't push it. They hardly pushed it. They didn't even shoot a video. You know, they, they, you know, they basically abandoned it, and we were so frustrated, you know. But at the time, we were still touring, making great money. So it was like, okay, we'll just we'll do what we got to do, and let's just see if this album at least go gold, and we can move on to the third one, and then maybe they'll realize that we should be organic enough to let us do what our thing. But, you know, there was Sunshine on the record, which was a brother a song that my brother led. It was an amazing record. There were some amazing songs on that album. It just, there was some garbage on there too, from, in my opinion. You know, um, we had a song from the R. Kelly camp back in the day, um, and he was just coming off producing a single that they had another group uh, on Maverick. They tried to sign another group, uh, <clears throat> Army group called uh, In Phase, and he produced their yeah. single. And it was and it was That's a great single, yeah. but they didn't push it. They never pushed it. Yeah, and like so they like, oh. yeah. yeah, and so they then they never pushed that record. So they, you know, they thought, oh, you guys do you guys should do a record with R. Kelly, and I was like, man, really? Anybody trying to do it? And we put a record on the, the song we did with them was called Bone. It was raunchy. It was it was just not a record that we ever should have did. And you know, we let somebody from the label. Well, I want to say somebody. He was an intern at the time, Guy O'Siri, who now runs Rock Nation, <laughs> who, who was sweeping when I was there, sweeping the floors, had a little office. In, but what he did was he signed Alanis Morissette. And if you remember Alanis Morissette, who ended up, her first record ended up doing close to 30 million records. Um, yeah. So that was where he kind of blew up. But he was an intern when I was there. I would sit in his office, and when the group was going, be going out, I would stay in the office up there and just watch and sit in on meetings and listen, you know. But the second album, it just they didn't market it well. They tried to go balls out with the first single, with the So In Love, and when it stalled, they just basically did what most time most record companies do. If you if you have a record that stalls, they just back off and they won't push anything else. And so at that point, we were like, man, just let us out this deal. We don't want to be in this deal. You know, let us out this deal. And they were like, ah, oh, let's work it out. I'm trying to work with it. But the group at that time, and me, myself included, I was already on to greener pastures. I was already, I had hired my own business manager. I had started my own independent label because I do hip-hop as well. So I was, I had already found a label deal back when Indy was the biggest independent distributor in the country and had a distribution deal. Maverick gave me permission to start a label. And so I was like, man, if we don't do another third label, I'm straight. Y'all go ahead, peace out. I'm going to go do my thing. And when it came down to it, that's what we did. And the good thing that Maverick was, and Freddie DeMann, I'll never forget this. He told me in his office one day, he said, John, I expect you um, to go on and do bigger things. you got the mind to, and the mindset to do this long after this is over. Save your money, do what you do, and keep doing it. Keep doing what you do. And I've always remembered that, and that's probably the reason that I'm still the only one in the music today. You know, I've released 12 albums over my career on my record company, on my label. Um, you know, now 
having released my second gospel album, making the transition to gospel about five years ago. And so that's just how it's been. The second album basically chilled our career with, with Maverick, so to speak. You know, and so the group kind of, everybody kind of fizzled. We got back together to do a little, um, well, I released an album called Timeless, which was a, basically a best of album. And I included like three or four yeah. new songs. But that was the kind of scenario. And that second album basically just killed, you know, what we, what we were doing in the Well, you kind of, um, you kind of went into the second album with some other questions that I had, but I mean, that, that's cool. Though. Like I said, it's all knowledge to me, but, I know that on the second album, you guys had a young Robin Thicke because you know, he, he was in Brian McKnight's camp, I guess, learning how to write and how to be an artist. Did you get a chance to work with Robin at all on the second album when he was a youngster? Well, he actually helped write a song called The First Time on the album. Um, so and then, you know, we didn't know who the hell he was. He was like, white boy. You know what I'm saying? Um and we, we basically treated him like that. Like, all right, all right, boy, whatever. Let me hear what you got, you know. Um, and so, but we ended up, you know, being cool. And then years later, I actually met him again, and we talked and actually had some fond memories because he remembered me. Uh, I was doing an actual show um, in L.A., and I ran into him at a restaurant, and I was like, you know. And, of course, he was bigger than life at that point. But I was like, what's up? John B., you know, and he was like, I'm not John B., but um, Robin, Robin Thick, and, you know, he was like, um, he looked, and he's like, Powell, Powell, right? Jay Powell. He's like, oh, man, what's up? You know, we chopped it up for a minute. It was cool. You know, at that, time, at that point, he thought he was he was kicking, he was in the restaurant with Paula Pat and everything else. So I was like, all right, man. So, I, like I said, I had never been one of these starstruck. I, I always feel like it's a mutual respect for people. Um, that handle business. And so I just treat it like that, like, what up, give them that, whatever. I ain't trying to take no pictures. I ain't got to do no selfies. Keep them moving. It is what it is, you know. All right, so talking about the um, the pop direction, um, I want to get your opinion after I, after I get my little um, statement as, as a fan because it, it appears, you know, the label was trying to push you more into that pop direction and I think for me as a consumer I find that a lot of R and B artists end up chasing that pop sound or that, that Euro pop sound because that's where the money is because if you think about it from a consumer standpoint, you know, we as black folks rarely would buy music back in the day, especially when streaming not, not streaming, when you could burn a CD or, you know, downplay it illegally, we wouldn't right. buy music. So, you know, other ethnicities would be the ones to buy the music. And Neo came in every year, so he was saying basically the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is because they're the ones buying the music. You guys aren't really buying the music. And every artist that I, every artist that I interview, they kind of always say that the, the masses – they want the rhythm, but they don't want the blues of R&B. Because you can have a catchy beat and not say anything substantial in the song, and it'll sell. That's so true. It's almost Very how, true. It's almost like with, with, with the singing style, like you know somebody can really, really sing, but they'll 
hold back vocally because it's not going to appeal to the masses. And even looking back in the, um, what you were saying, how, you know, in the, even in the 90s, if you kind of compare um, what a lot of groups were doing back then, you know, you, you have the first album, it's straight forward R&B for the urban crowd, and then eventually, like, you know, you want to try to push them into that pop sound, and I kind of liken that to um, the success that, I guess, Boys, boys Men were having, and eventually mm-hmm. kind of what Casey and Jodo did, because if, if you think about it, Jodeci and Casey and Jojo were two totally different entities. Now, the music's still quality, but Casey and Jojo's, if they were to do a song like Freaking You, it wouldn't get the same play on a pop station that all my life did. Well, so as you grow, as, you as an artist, so as, as an artist, I mean, why do you think that is? Why do you think if, if you're already successful as an artist, right? You sold so many mm-hmm. records, you have a fan base. Why, why, why would some labels want to push you into a pop sound and kind of alienate your original fan base? I'll tell you why. Because labels don't necessarily make artists like Motown made artists. They make the flavor of the day. And that still goes on to this day. But even then, they were trying to chase the wave. Come on, we can do another end of the road. We can do an all for one. Now, we would sing circles around all for one. No disrespect. I know those guys, cool guys, but truth be told, we will sing, I'll sing and sing circles around those guys. But here they are with a record approaching 2 million units back in the day because it was so pop that everybody jumped on it. So label like, look, we need that money too. We want to get some of that money. Y'all better singers. Come on, let's make y'all pop. Go do the song with David Foster. And even against the integrity of the artist, because me personally, I don't believe in, I believe in staying consistent and being relevant, but I don't believe in compromising your integrity of the music to please the masses. If you're going to be an artist and you're going to develop a fan base, you're going to develop that fan base because of what you do and how you did it. You didn't see Earth, Wind, and Fire trying to go pop. You didn't see Tony, Tony, Tony trying to go pop. They did what was conducive to their style. You didn't see Men Condition try to change from being a band, you know. Um, and I know Stokely and all them very well. And But they did what they did for the longest. And until Stokely said, like, look, it's a major labor thing ain't working. You know, it's time for me to go keep making some bread. Let me go do what I do, which you got to respect. Same thing with me. I mean, I, look, I've made more money and done more impressive things after UNV than I ever did with them. And not even saying that the records were bigger, but just from a business perspective and a business standpoint, I've made, because I was smarter and I know so much more, I made so much more money after the group and, and a major label than I ever did on a major. As an independent, I have, you know, God has blessed me tremendously. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of singers that you probably may interview and they ain't doing too hot. You know, they ain't doing too hot. You know, there's not a lot of folks, um, you know, they just getting by because they never really had a B plan of what to do after the music stops. And see, that was always my biggest thing is what's next? What can you do when the music stops to sustain yourself and live the way you lived while you were a musician? I tell people all the time, you know, when, you, when you've been to the mountaintop 
it's hard to want to come down. But if you if you can even come down and be a fraction and at least be poached up in the middle of the mountain, you're still doing all right. And you just have to know how to be comfortable in your own skin to do what you do. Some people can't get around. Oh, I'm a singer. That's all I do. Or if you can't sing anymore, like right now, you got no conscience to go make no money, and you want to sit and flush with money, what you going to do? But you don't really have no skills. You have nothing of value but your voice, you know. So in that regard, you just have to kind of – just people fall off, and then it starts to, you know – you start to hear people who didn't pay taxes and they got so caught up and things happen and it just gets crazy. But you have to be able to establish yourself long after the music when the music stops or be still relevant enough to consistently release music to where you develop a fan base enough that will still buy your music every time you release a record. Now, it might not be platinum, but if I'm an independent label and I'm selling my record, I'll give you a classic example. Um, when my first gospel album came out, um, you know, people are, oh, you're making a transition to gospel, blah, 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 whatever, whatever. Well, as an independent label, I'm making $7 a unit. On a major label, I'm making $0.75 cents a unit. So if I sell, which my Savior Made album sold about, uh, about 28,000 units total, somewhere in there, and still on the website, still selling, but around that unit sales, now you do 28,000 units and you times that by $7 a unit, you're done all right. When you didn't spend a fraction of the cost that you spent going with a major where you're spending, they're spending all your money and then charging it back to you. Well, me, I could put an album together for twelve to $15,000 production-wise, another five in some marketing and photos and making it look like it's a major label. If you see my website, you see, most people see it and be like, man, are you still signing somebody? No, signing me. You know, um, but, you know, you have to be able to stay relevant enough to look the part, um, to have your, you know, material and sound quality as good as it was on a major. And nowadays, that's not really hard to do if you're, you know, if you've been in the game for a minute. And even if you haven't. I mean, why do you think some of these young artists come out and these young rappers do what they do and, you know, they blow up on the Internet or whatever the case may be, and they record it mm-hmm. in their best friend's basement? Yep. That's how it is. Yeah, I um I interviewed um stuff stuff you were just saying talking about I interviewed um Ryan Toby yesterday you know songwriter and the stuff you were saying he was pretty much dropping those same jewels and just saying how but, but the problem is that a lot of artists fail to realize in this day and age is that you have to adapt to the time and the reason yep. why like you know these fifteen sixteen Whatever kids aren't are you know making money the way they are and doing stuff the way they're doing stuff is because of reasons like that you know they could easily pull out a Casio keyboard do a simplified beat do a goofy dance on TikTok go viral get signed and make you know crazy money and he was basically telling me how what what a lot of artists don't realize is that like you know you don't have to really compromise your sound are your, you know, what you want to do, but have to be consistent with it because in 2020, there's too many ways for you to get music out the right way and not have a label on the way for you not to push the music that you want to, music you want to push, especially now with the coronavirus going on, there's not so much time. Right. You know, to put out, 
to put out to put out content. So yeah, I mean, like I said, this stuff is all it's all jewels to me, man. Like I, I love hearing artists break it down and talk about the side the side of it, like you know, the hustle you got to get. Because I've always said, even though I can't sing and dance, it's you not know, worth a damn part of my language. If I were in the group though, and I know and I know I couldn't sing, I know I wasn't lead singer. I'd have something else going on, pardon the pun, to, um, sure. to, to, to make sure, you know, I could always eat. So whether it be becoming an engineer, whether it be becoming, you know, a songwriter, learning A&R, like I would do something else to, to ensure that I could always eat because I know this label is probably going to approach my lead singer and say, you know, we want you to go solo, but what are you going to do now? So it's like you can't, you can't rely on the next man to ensure you're going to eat. you got to do something else to keep those checks coming in. Or sure, you, have to be able to do that. you have to make yourself – I always tell, I tell young people when I, I, I do a lot of public speaking because now um, for the last decade I've worked in admissions uh, for college admissions. I was a director of uh, 12 different schools in the metropolitan area in Detroit um, or all around Michigan um, before I switched to doing what I do now. But – that you, I tell students that all the time. You have to develop a skill that creates value. Because if you don't have value or a skill that allows you to have value is what attracts people to people. You know, nobody wants to, I mean, I, I, no disrespect, but if you can't do anything, you don't have any skills, you're no good to me. You're only good to me if you have a skill or something that brings value that I can tangibly use. And that's the key. Were you talking about Ryan from City High? Yeah, Ryan Toby. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, it's funny because I did a song with uh, Claudette probably about maybe eight years ago. Um, I don't know. Are they still married? No, they're not. They're not married. And, and, yeah, no, they're not, they're not married. And, like, you know, and when, I, when I interviewed him, I told him, like, you know, I don't want to get into all that, you know, what I heard, you know, what the media said, because I just want to focus on the knowledge that you have and you have because, you oh, know, yeah. I read album credits. So it's like, Everything that cat has done to be to be, I think he's only he's forty three, but the stuff he was doing like twenty years ago to be that young, like yeah, dude, dude's a beast. Like it's a spin game, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's like with um, I know my, you know, you know I yeah, so very talented writer, very talented writer. That's the game, man. Right, That's so, the game. Oh yeah, yeah, and sure. like I said, man, everything, everything that you're saying. Everybody, everybody that I've interviewed so far, whether it be an indie artist or you know a big artist, they're all saying the same stuff that you know you're saying. Like, and, and nobody's come off as arrogant. Nobody's come off as um, egotistical. I'm just like, you know, they're giving me the real because I tell them like, you know, speak freely, say what you want to say. I'm, I'm not going to censor you because it's the truth behind it. The record industry is very, very grimy and very, very um, shicey, and it's not for everybody. Absolutely. You know, but they're moving on. So, <laughs> so around 2016, you formed UMV2, and you released the album Kings of the Quiet Storm. What was the inspiration behind that title? Well, um, you know, we've always been known for our soulful ballad-type singing. Um, you know, a friend of mine, actually, uh, we were when we were developing that record, um, actually a young guy um, who used to be in the group Seven Mile. I don't know if you 
remember that group is from Detroit. They were signing Mar- Mariah Carey's label. They were yep. a group that came out of Detroit. Yep. And, uh, you know, he was happened to be in the studio. She was like, man, y'all know how big a fan I am of UMV. Y'all are the kings of the quiet songs. And I just, when, I, when, he, when he said that, I was like, you know what? That's catchy. I think we're going to have to run with that. That would be a great title for the album. So, I mean, the UMV 2 came about um, basically because I was trying to put the original group back together to tour. We had an opportunity to do some touring, and I felt like, you know, because I was the only one in the business still, I'm the one that everybody contacts. I have all the pages, the, you know, social media pages, you know, uh, all the UMV. I own actually the UMV Masters. So um, everybody comes to me when they ask about UMV. So I started asking the guys. Like I said, one of them is my brother. I'm like, look, um, we got an opportunity to do some shows. Y'all want to do some shows. But it kind of still came back to the ancient old thing that, you know, I was running around trying to put everything together, trying to work and make it happen, trying to do what we had to do. Just wasn't getting the same cooperation in return. So it was like, you know what, we're going we're gonna to start to blow opportunities if I don't um, begin to try to move if I want to do what we had to do. So I told them, all right, well, listen, guys, um, keep it moving. And they didn't nobody really seemed to care about um, so I started. I grabbed two singers that I knew from around the way that were extremely talented, and then we brought in a new guy. And I was like, "We're going to do this UNV two thing and get this money." And so we started touring and doing some shows. And and next thing you know, I was like, "Man, let's just do an album." And I had a bunch of songs already written, um, so I just basically produced the album. One of the members in the group, Terry Thomas. Um, uh, was writing as well, so we did some. We collabed on a few things, but um, put the album together and put it out. I was like, we might as well put it out and get some, you know, make some things happen. So we did that. But then once things started popping, the group started coming back around. Hey man, what's up? I see y'all doing this, and you know, what are you supposed to be doing? We the ones that blah, blah blah. I'm like, look, I tried to get y'all to do this. We actually did a single. We shot a video. I don't know if you ever saw the video running. Um, that we did. That was all the original members except Terry Thomas, who was in UMB2. Um, and it, it was going good for a minute, and slowly but surely, everybody started fading off. And then, so unless it, it, unless it had something to do with money, nobody wanted to put any work. So I was like, all right, well, i got to keep doing what I'm doing. And at that time, I was, you know, transitioning, getting ready to transition into doing the gospel anyway. You know, my version of what I consider urban gospel, not necessarily traditional gospel, but um, R&B sounding musically, but messages, nothing but gospel. And so I was like, you know, I don't really want to, I wasn't going to go back and rehash doing the whole UMV2 thing again. I was just like, guys, we had a great run. If we get some shows, we'll do some shows. But other than that, I just want to kind of keep it moving. We're actually going to uh, UMV2. We're going to London um, in July end of July to go do a show, as long as everything pandemic-wise is back up to speed. But uh, So we still do shows, and uh, I'm just doing what I do completely from uh, a gospel side, and, and, and I'm more than content with that and, you know, perfectly where I am in life doing what I had to do in that regard. And, I'm, and God has allowed me to do really well um, with what I've been able to do musically. You know, I have a catalog of probably 350 songs. Last year I did a publishing deal um, 
with a UK label and let them licensing, license some of my music uh, to put on compilations over there. And that's what it's about. You have to know the business to be able to navigate through this industry and, and utilize the things and tools that you have. But see, most, most artists don't own their masters, so they can't do that. I went back, um, you know, when UMB was pretty much over in 15 years after everybody had basically forgot about it. I went to Guy Siri and said, hey, listen, I really would like to buy those masters, man. I know y'all ain't doing that. He's just we buy those back. And he respected the businessman that I was at the time and allowed me to do just that. So, you know, I own the catalog, the UMV catalog completely, even the music that I – because even sometimes the music that you write doesn't mean you own the masters. Yeah. So I went back and actually bought the actual masters. So I own the catalog and everything that comes with it. So that's why I was able to put out Timeless. That third album, Timeless, I mean, I sold 80,000 units of that record at $7 a pop. I did all right. Now, I didn't say the group did all right. I said I did all right. Now, and, you know, but you ask somebody to say, look, if I'm going to ask you to be a part of something, I expect you to put in what I'm putting in. If it's financial, it's, it's financial. You got to do what you got to do. But and you say, no, nah, I'm with it. I ain't going to do nothing. No way. What you going to do with that? My old songs. Oh, okay. Cool beans. I got this. And then when it blows up and they, you see that statement, like, damn. This nigga made this much on it. Wait a minute. No, remember you said you weren't really, you know, pressed about how that was working, and you didn't think it was going to do nothing. So now that it is, you can't come to me now saying, you know, can I, can I have, or should I be able to get? Mm -hmm. No, sir. Business is business. We got to keep it that way. And I think, you know, sometimes you can get a bad rep for that. I mean, you know, when we do unsung. It'll probably be them three, so and me on. You know how unsung slide between uh, artists sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It'll probably be like that. Um, with the group. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're still cool, but we ain't cool like we used to be. You know, everybody's growing up. Everybody's. You know. All right. So the gospel question. That's my next question. Perfect. Perfect little segue. So doing gospel. As well as contemporary, as well as contemporary R and B, do you find yourself juggling both? I mean, is, is it hard to juggle both from a spiritual standpoint? If you don't mind my asking. No, um, because I don't necessarily do. I, I don't juggle both. I do gospel and gospel only now at this point. Um, the only thing I do from an R and B standpoint is, you know, I may we may do some dates here and there, or whatever. But you, I mean, if you know our music, you and me never did anything that was raunchy. If you heard Kings of the Quiet Storm, we didn't do raunchy music. We did our own folks love music. I don't believe um, that God has any problem with, with me doing a love song. There talks about love songs in the Bible. I don't believe that there's nothing wrong with, it's not like I'm serving two masters. I am definitely, you know, a believer but I don't believe there's anything wrong with singing a good love song. It's not wrong. She's just talking about matters of the heart. There's so many you can pull out a Bible. You pull out a Bible and you can find so many different scriptures about matters of the heart. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm, I don't have to juggle it at all. You know, my, 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 my complete, um, my complete story is, is gospel. And if you, if you've had a chance to listen to, uh, either one of my albums, Savior Made or I Am Commissioned. The music 
if you just put the instrumental on, you think it's about to come with some gospel. You think it's regular R&B. You think, you know, the beat is, sometimes I got some beats on there. You'll be like, man, you can turn that up in your truck and be rolling down the street or whatever. Like it's, you know, and so you hear the lyrics and then, but the song catches you. And I did that for a reason because, you know, we live in an era right now that this world needs God. This world needs some God in it. And whether people want to realize it or not, people want to have their own subversion of who God is to them and whether you Buddha or Islam or Muslim or whatever, I don't knock anybody in what they believe as long as it makes them a better person to do what they need to do. I'm a Christian, proud Christian, and I have no problems in saying so. So my music is a reflection of that. And sometimes I feel like young people today don't get, don't, don't give gospel or uh, something with a message uh, a chance unless it can musically grab them. So my music, my gospel is just like that. It will grab you. And don't get me wrong, I do have some traditional, very gospel things, but the majority, about 90% of it is very, you know, very urban, very R&B sounding, you know. So it gives you the, the time frame, to, the, the ability to, I feel like, to reach a, bigger, reach a big, bigger demographic and still have the ability to um, give credit to God. You know, I mean, I, I spent a long time doing R&B and doing what I had to do, um, and uh, I feel like I'm only here to this day because of, um, you know, what God has brought me through. I'm standing outside my house looking, you know, um, like, man, this is a blessing. And it's warm in Michigan for a change, but, um, I mean, you know, not every artist that came out in the 90s, man, trust me, can tell you that. I tell people all the time, just because a person had a platinum record don't mean they rich. Not by any means. Most of them guys who wrote records, who had great deals, who or had situations that sold millions of records, right now I'm telling you, couldn't go to the bank and pull out twenty grand to save their life. Still living in an apartment, not driving what they thought they was driving back in the day. All those things, all those material things are gone. You know, and so without having a smart <laughs> business head of trying to maintain and do what you got to do. You know, it can all be a glimpse. It can be here today and gone tomorrow. I respect, man. Thank you for sharing your um, testimony. You know, and I, I found that out myself, um, too, more so um, recently. Like, you know, the older that I've, um, the older that I've gotten, you know, I found myself kind of censoring what I listen to from, you know, an adult standpoint and, you know, I got to tell people, it's like, I, I really, I really try not to judge anybody and, you know, go in on people. I've, you know, I've kind of found myself getting away from that, you know, in the order that I've gotten. And I'll just say, you know, it's not my cup of tea. You know, you're in the industry, you're doing something and it's, it's, it's appealing to somebody, but it's not for me. So, and what you were saying about singing love songs and singing about, um, you know, still singing, not taking it to that. I guess what I what I kind of use when I write a review is I call it the R. Kelly territory, to where you kind of take it too far with the uh, content. To where you know you can still sing about love, still sing about sensuality, but it's all in how you do it, though. And to me, it's like if you're in your forties, because I'm you know I'm 39, and I'm like you know I'm that old, so. I don't want to hear about that kind of stuff anymore because to me it's kind of like it's hurting my soul 
a bit to hear that because if you look at what um the bard was doing back in the day, it was so so nuanced, so natural, just so like you were saying earlier, organic, and you could easily you know, say a song like, I call your name, it's a love song, but they could also be talking about God, though. Yep. Because it's a natural a natural flow. So, yeah, thank you for sharing your testimony, and thank you for um, putting that out there, because, you know, that was great for me to hear, and I just got a smile on my face right now hearing, I can hear the positivity and the savor in your voice when you're talking about that. So that brings, yeah, that brings me to my next question. No. Okay. All right, so you get a phone call from Tyler Perry, and Mr. Perry tells you he wants you to – Mr. Perry tells you he wants to finance a modern-day biblical love story of your choice and turn it into a gospel musical. What story would you pick from the Bible and why to do a musical to? Um, I would probably pick the story of Joseph um, simply because, you know, I relate to that character when it becomes when it comes to if you think about the story of Joseph when he was estranged from his brothers and you know Joseph wanted to be he wanted to be the man um, but in the process of being the man he kind of ostracized himself from his brothers and who knows when when they you know when he left that he was and then he ended up um, you know going on to be a king. You know, that coming back, though, at the end, his scenario was like, I still need my family. I still want to have, you know, the love of my family around me. And so, you know, I could see myself, I could see story kind of like that. I mean, I'm in the process of um, working on a book, uh, a book about my life. And, you know, the just the... the how everything came together with UNP and uh, the trials and tribulations that we went through, um, the portion of the business that we hated but had no real control over at that point, you know, things like that. So when you have that, you know, kind of scenario, and if I were able to tell that story, that would be the kind of story that I would want them to, you know, put together in that regard because that's the story near and dear to my heart for sure. Cool, cool. Yeah, that's um, that's one of the things that um, I used to always um, when I wanted to go to you know when I wanted to be a film director when I was growing up, you know, Pastor would always tell me like you know, Young Blood, you know, there's so many stories in the Bible that you could tell. You just got to modernize it and you know tie it to the um thing. You're not the first person that's told me like you know the story about Joseph is a good one. I mean, you could you could take the story of Job and make that into something, the story of uh, David. I mean, it's so many stories out there. You don't have to necessarily have it, like, straightforward, you know, overly peachy, but it's just, it's all how you do it, though. And, you know, that's going to speak to your talent for any director out there as a writer to not necessarily dumb it down, but to humanize it and make it mainstream where you can appeal both to your Christian audience, as well as your mainstream audience. Absolutely. All right, so what do you have planned for 2020 musically? I know you mentioned the London tour. What else do you have going on this year once the COVID clears up? Well, 
<clears throat> what I'm doing right now is I'm basically focusing on this new album uh, I am commissioned. So that will be probably a big part of what I'm trying to get ready to promote when this kind of thing goes away. <clears throat> I mean, I'm my regular life now. I'm a national account executive for Quicken Loans Mortgage Company. Um, now that might seem crazy um, as a musician, but um, very proud of what I do. Um, Quicken Loans is the largest largest mortgage company in the country, um, and so if I'm not doing music, of course I'm I'm just doing what I got to do to make sure I'm keeping money flowing like it should. But I'm going to be promoting the I Am Commission album. Um, so along with adding in, because I sometimes have to use the UMV, not have to, but I, I do because it's something I've earned, the ability to use the UMV platform to take me into places that even 27 years later it still allows me to do. So the London, like the London show, he contacted me um, about my single, So Good, because he thought UMV was singing the backgrounds. You know, and that's not a problem. I don't, I don't take any offense to that. That sound is a sound I feel like I created. So, I, you know, I mean, with the help of the guys, I don't want to sound like I feel like I'm being selfish with that. Um, but that's a style that we've made extremely popular. And so it, tra- it definitely transcend, trans, you know, transcends to my music today even, um, just a little more modernized. But the harmony vision is still kind of the same way. So at the end of the day, uh, I'm going to promote the album. You know, um, but I'm not into, I'm, you know, I'm about to turn, you know, 50, 49. Now, I, I would hope that most people don't think I look 49. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, I, I'm a family guy, man. Like I told you before, um, huge on family. I have six beautiful children, three boys, three girls, two sets of twins, you know. So I'm, I'm extremely blessed, you know. People say, oh, man, you got six kids. You're probably all over, y'all probably all over yourselves in the house. Well, if you're blessed, fortunate enough, like I am, blessed, fortunate enough to, you know, I tell people all the time, listen, when I grew up, me and my brother shared a two-bedroom, we lived in a two-bedroom townhouse in the projects. Now I live in a seven-room, five-bathroom, 6,000-square-foot home with every kid having their own room. That's a blessing. That's something that my kids don't even realize. When you tell, when I say stuff to them, like, I just don't understand how good y'all got it. You know, but it is what it is. And not every artist that came out in the 90s can definitely say that. You know, so, but I, I, I don't attribute all of that to anything UNV. Like I said, the majority of all of my money that I ever made was far after UNV, was probably 10 years after UNV, you know. And so, you know, it's just one of those things where you know, you, I feel like if you put God in the center of everything that you do, and don't get me wrong, I, I didn't always do that. And I was still blessed, but that's sometimes just his grace and favor on your life that will allow you to do what you got to do. And, you know, knowing that you will, when I show you the light of my divinity, you will come to me completely. And he has. <laughs> and I tell people I've been to the mountaintop and back twice, you know. So, you know, you have to learn to just be, learn to live with humility and learn to understand from whence your blessings come. And if you can do that uh, in a way, God will you know, stay in your corner and allow you to use what he's given you to continue to make it happen. And that's just what I'm planning to do. I mean, I, I feel like music is just what I call a glorified hobby that still pays. I don't rely on it 
It doesn't define me 100%. It just allows me some joy and it's a passion. So, you know, when things, when I don't feel my best, I go go in my studio. I write. I do what I do because it's a, something I love and it's a passion to be able to do, you know. But I'm not a starving artist anymore, and I don't have to rely on feeling like, oh, my God, if I don't go do this bar club or whatever, I ain't going to make it, you know. So that's my message to young people all over. Please, people say, oh, I don't have a B plan, because then you won't put all your energies in that A plan. Don't get me wrong. That's a great concept. But if you're not smart thinking and you're not creating something that's going to be there for you to be able to do long after your music stops, you're setting yourself up for failure. But you have multi-million dollars and somebody help really guiding how you market and spend that money, you better have a B plan and be smart enough to be able to do something when the, when the music stops. That's the key. No doubt. So before we close out, is there anything you want to add? And where can fans find you on social media? Well, uh, of course you can find me on Facebook. Uh, under actually John Powell, but it's P-O-W-W. Uh, it'll say, you know, of course, a.k.a. J. Powell, but um, on Facebook. And then, of course, I have J. Powell Music on Facebook, my music page. I have the Universal Movie and Voices UNV uh, music page. Um, I'm on Twitter, at J. Powell, and that's J. period, P-O-W-W. I'm on Instagram, of course, at uh, J. Powell UNV, and that's... Uh, J-P-O-W-W-O-U-N-D, all one word. And uh, let's see, of course, we can't forget the website. Uh, the website is fully functional. We're on it all day, every day, making sure content is fresh and everything else. You get the opportunity to hear the new music plus the past. The whole catalog is pretty much on there, almost 14 different albums from an independent standpoint. Um, great music. Check it out, www.jpowmusic.com. And that's J Powell with two W's, of course, like I mentioned before, P O W W. Um, and that's really how you can reach me or contact me. Um, on the website, there's booking information. There's uh, information if you're looking for writing and production, because I, you know, I manage probably seven different producers who do music, and I'm talking about every genre of music, young and old, uh, R&B, hip hop, pop, rock, whatever the case may be. So, um, posting is a big thing. So. Uh, that's how you can reach me, and that's pretty much it, man. I definitely appreciate you uh, bringing me on and giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit. And I appreciate you, share my story. For sure. Nah, except, like, like I said earlier, man, it's, I appreciate you, man. I'm, I'm just here. I'm just a small fish in this, in this pond of a world trying to, get, trying to get my voice out there and learn from the, um, the legends and those who have um, – experience the highs and the lows of the record industry and hear their testimony, whether it be good, bad, or indifferent. So, you know, to me, it's a blessing that you're talking to me, to be honest with you. So, I mean, I, I appreciate you, brother. All good, for sure. So, All good. once again, folks, this is Derek Dunn with Reviews and Done. I've had the pleasure of speaking with John Powell, singer of the group UNV. Mr. Powell shared his website. Go check him out. And as always, in the words of Maurice White, be ever wonderful. Stay blessed, stay positive, and stay inspired. Done out. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the smoothest interviewer. 
in his own mind. Derek Dunn of Reviews and Done. Tune in next week for another episode of Reviews and Done with your suave host, Derek Dunn.